arguably the most famous 19th century American author was Mark Twain. You ever heard of Mark Twain? Sure you have. Every high schooler has to read Mark Twain. I think it's around grade 10, Huckleberry Finn. Mark Twain, unfortunately, wasn't a great proponent of the church. Through a number of things, his life had been embittered, the loss of children, particularly one favored daughter that he loved. She died. And he looked at the church, and he, quite frankly, wasn't overly impressed. He admitted this. In fact, he said in a, in a story that he wrote, he said he, he conducted a, an experiment. And he uh, got himself a cage, and, and he placed a dog and a cat in the cage, closed the cage, just to see if they could get along. A dog and a cat. Can you imagine? And, and he said, with some space and time, they seemed to get along. So he chose to up the ante. And so in that same cage, he threw in a bird, a goat, and a duck. And he waited, and he said, you know, with, with a, some space of time and some adjustments, these three animals seem to get along in this cage. And so he said he chose to up the ante even more. And so he opened up his small cage, and he said he threw in a Baptist, a Lutheran, and a Presbyterian. He said in a minute there wasn't a living thing left in the cage. And we laugh, because it's funny, but it's also sad. What he's really trying to do is make an editorial comment on what he thinks about the church. The very thing that's supposed to be uh, modeling love, loving kindness, grace, God's grace, is sometimes not so graceful. Any of us who have been in church long enough, over decades, have recognized there have been seasons in our churches, almost all of them, where we're not overly proud of our behavior as a church family. We're not always the examples that we like to think we are, are we? The word grace, it's not overly understood in 20, 21st century parlance anymore, so much so that many of the modern translations are using, rather than the word grace, loving kindness. That seems to translate well in our, in our understanding of the word. But it's a beautiful word, grace. I mean, when was the last time you received something from someone that you know you did not deserve? A bill was paid. A meal was brought to the door. A need was met that you had no idea who met that need. I remember years ago going up to the attendant in a parking lot to pay my bill. My car had been in the parking lot. I went to pay, and she said, well, you don't have to pay the person in front of you in the car that's just driving away. They paid your bill. I have no idea who they were. Grace. Just something done, something wonderful done, but I don't merit it. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it in any way, but it's, it's given to me anyway. Grace. It still makes the nightly news. I mean, you watch the nightly news, and what is it? It's always bad news, right? It's bad. It's really bad out there. Okay, we know that. But they always end with this little human interest story at the end. 
and it's usually a story of unbelievable grace. Just to tuck us into bed and, whew, all is well with the world, I can sleep again. Grace. The word in the Old Testament is the word chassid. Chassid. And that word literally translated into English means to stoop or to bend. A Bible commentator of another generation, Donald Barnhouse, said, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is service and evangelism. But love that stoops is grace. God chose to stoop, and we have been the beneficiaries forevermore. Praise His name. Now, I've known Pastor Rick for about 30 years. So imagine this story. You've spent a little bit more than you had expected at Christmas, and now January has arrived, and the credit card bill comes in, you go, wow. And you've got to go to the bank to pay the credit card bill, and you go to the bank, and you go up to the teller, and you go to pay your huge credit card bill, and the teller says, this is your lucky day because Pastor Rick Baker came in yesterday and has paid your visa bill. And it even gets better. He has told us to send your bill to him every month for the rest of your life. I know Rick Baker. I've known him for 30 years. That's never going to happen. <laughs> and as poor analogy, I can pick on him, and he's not here, right? As poor an analogy as that is, that's what God does for each and every one of us who know him undeserving, unmerited, he keeps paying, paying forward for our debt. It's an amazing story. Sometimes we forget just how good the good news really is, right? People are looking for good news. We need to share good news over and over again. The story we want to look at this morning is a story from 2 Samuel chapter 9. We often, when we talk about grace, look in the New Testament. We're going to look in the Old Testament today. Encourage you to turn your Bibles to your smartphones to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to look at a familiar story from our Sunday, Sunday school days. 2 Samuel chapter 9. For the story, we have to go back 3,000 years. 3,000 years to a, a brutal time, a time when um, the toppled king of a country, his family, would be uh, exterminated, certainly exiled. And this occurs. We, we read of the story in uh, chapter 4. David hears this dual tragedy of both Saul, King Saul, and Prince Jonathan, both dying at the valley of Jezreel in this great battle. And he, he's... he's He's in kinship. He, his best friend is Jonathan. He's just lost his king. He's, he's just lost his best friend, but he doesn't take a lot of time to take power, but he grieves and then takes command. Saul's family, his family scatter like cockroaches. I remember when my wife and I lived in an apartment at Young and Shepherd, and you turn on the light in the kitchen, you could see the cockroaches go. You know what I feel? I never told my wife because I knew we wouldn't be there very long. That's what the king's family did. When, when the king dies, when the, the son, the prince dies, the family scatters. And in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, here's the scene of pandemonium. 
Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when Saul and Jonathan were killed at the Battle of Jezreel. When news of the battle reached the capital, the child's nurse grabbed him and fled, but she fell and dropped him as she was running, and he became crippled as a result. So in her haste, she grabs little Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, and she drops him, and he's, he's disabled forevermore for the rest of his life. We don't know the extent of his, his being crippled, but his legs, his feet have somehow been damaged significantly. Now we move 20 years forward to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And, um, and in this, this time, Mephibosheth has watched David, now King David, and he has watched him take over the land. The land that, quite frankly, Mephibosheth could rightly say was my right to be the ruler. Not you, David. I'm the son of Jonathan the prince, the grandson of King Saul. This is my rightful position. He's watched David grab the hearts and minds of God's people. And he's, he's done some significant things. So let's read the story. I'm going to read from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. One day David began wondering if anyone in Saul's family was still alive. For he had promised Jonathan that he would show kindness. See that word kindness? That's the word chassid, grace, loving kindness, God's loving kindness. Kindness, then, verse 2. He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? I mean, he knows what happens to the king's family when a new king shows up. He's wondering if anybody's alive or or they all been killed or exiled. If so, I want to show God's kindness. There's that word again, kindness. I want to show God's kindness to them in any way I can. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, but he's crippled. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the home of Machir, son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low in great fear and said, I am your servant. But David said, don't, don't be afraid. I've asked you to come so that I can be kind. There's a word again. Kind to you because of my vow to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the land that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you may live here with me at the palace. Mephibosheth fell to the ground before the king. Should the king show such kindness to a dead dog like me, he exclaimed. And then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for his family. But Mephibosheth will live here at the palace with me. Ziba, who had 15 sons and 20 servants, replied, Yes, my lord, I will do all that you commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly with David as though he were one of his own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, moved to Jerusalem to live at the palace. (coughs) Excuse me. 
20 years have passed. Mephibosheth has watched David claim his throne. This is the golden age of the United Kingdom. In David's 20 years, he has increased the land space from 6,000 square miles to 60,000 square miles. David does not lose in battle. His neighbors know that. They have come to revere and respect their, their adversary, King David, and his God, Jehovah. And now, entering into middle age, David is happy, he's healthy, He's humbled by all that God has bestowed upon he and his people, and he starts to be a little bit nostalgic. And and one night he starts to look in the, he has his chronicler open up the history books of what's happening or what has happened in days gone by. And we read in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter uh, chapter 9, these words, is there anyone yet left of the house of Saul? Because he assumes they've all been hunted down, right? And then he goes on to say, that I may show him kindness, chassid, loving kindness, God's grace for Jonathan's sake, he says. In other words, he's saying, I want to demonstrate to Jonathan's son, I want to demonstrate the same kindness that Jehovah, that God has has demonstrated to me. I want, to, I want to show it to him. I want to shower him with this same kindness, not because of anything he has done, but because of Jonathan, because of Jonathan's sake. And, and you don't have to be a theologian to figure out that something's going on here. There's an analogy going on here. In theological terms, they call it a type, a type of Christ. There's a sense in which David, Jonathan, are a type of Christ. This, this blessing, this, this grace is being showered upon this young man for no other reason than David has made a promise to his father, Jonathan. And we turn to verse 2 to verse 4, and we learn of a servant named Ziba. He had been a servant of King Saul, Mephibosheth's grandfather, the ruler who had been killed in the valley of Jezreel. And he said, yes. There is, but you get a sense, at least, it's being telegraphed off the verses, to me anyway, that he's seeking to dissuade David from taking any serious effort to have any contact with this young man. Ziba knows about him. He's been living like a hermit, you know, many, many miles away. He's, he's, he's you know, he's a disabled individual. He's not, a, he's not this charismatic individual, the kind of people they like to have at the palace. It's a sense in which he's trying to dissuade David from having anything really to do with this this sort of hermit, this guy who wants to hide away, hide away. But you get the sense right away in these first few verses that David is not looking for the man's resume. He's not interested in what he's done, or he's not interested in, in those things that have been lined up and listed and why he's worthy in any way. It's not his resume that he's interested in. He's just interested in showing this this loving kindness because of a promise he made to another man, Jonathan, this man's father. He finds out he's living in Lodabar. Lodabar is a Hebrew word. Literally translated from Hebrew to English, Lodabar means a barren place. A barren place. Mephibosheth, for the last 20 or so years, has been living in this this barren place, this, this, this dwelling place, this, this city that people run to when they're trying to hide from their past. There's lots of people living like that in Oshawa. They moved here trying to hide from their past, hoping their past will never follow. 
They'll never be found out. And this is a place, Lodabar, a spiritually barren place where people run, run to, hiding from their past. I find it ironic that Mephibosheth for now over two decades has been running away, hiding from the very man who wants to show kindness. Isn't that ironic? Living out as a hermit in no man's land, hiding with fear from the very man who wants to show grace and mercy. Lots of people living like that in Oshawa, in our world. Because there are a lot of people in our world who convince themselves that Lodabar is not such a bad place to live. To live in spiritual barrenness is actually a fun place to live. They don't understand the dilemma they're in as they hide out in the Lodabars that are all over our community. All David wants to give them or give to Mephibosheth is the plenty that can be found in his palace, and Mephibosheth is running and hiding in Lodabar. We then come to verse 7. And Mephibosheth comes before King David. And what's the first words that David says to Mephibosheth? In verse 7, take a look. He says, fear not. Do not be afraid. That is the most often comment that Jesus is quoted when people came to him. Because a lot of people fear. Fear. They don't understand. They've been living in Lodabar so long in spiritual barrenness that they, quite frankly, have started to believe the lies they say about the Savior. He's just here to judge me, be a killjoy. They begin to believe it. When you live in Lodabar long enough, that's what you start to believe. Now, I'm going to take a liberty in verses 5 to 7. Mephibosheth is confronted by King's soldier, by one of King's messengers, one of David's messengers. If you picture with me, he's living in Lodabar. And remember, he's, he's a disabled individual. He's likely walking with some crutches of some sort. And then the tower guard yells out, someone approaches the city. And Mephibosheth has been careful for the low, these last two decades, whoever comes into the city, because this may be his day of doom, quite frankly. So someone is approaching, and they call out, and he starts to get a little worried. And then, and then he hears the tower guard yell out, it's one of the king's chariots. And he is, he's, he's, he's panicking, and he, and, he, and he gets himself to his apartment, and he, he gets himself into his apartment. He, he barricades the door. He gets into his room. He hides under his bed. He hears the chariot come up to the apartment. He hears the door being smashed open. Into his room comes one of the great soldiers, David's messengers, and he basically says, Mephibosheth, David wants to see you. And Mephibosheth is hiding under his bed, thinking this is, this is the day I've been dreading, the day in which the king has finally found me out. My past is finally caught up with me. And he's taken back. He's taken back to the king. You know, I read a, probably around 15 years ago a story in Texas in a newspaper, and a woman was carrying two bags of groceries out of the store, and she came up to her car, and she opened the door, and she push, uh, put the two bags of groceries beside her, and, and then she went to just correct her rearview mirror and noticed that the uh, 
pickup truck behind her, there was a man in the driver's seat, and he was very animated, and he was yelling at her and doing this and, and, and doing, you know, like this, and she got just frightened, so she got the keys and put them in the ignition and got out of there. As she raced out of the parking lot onto the road, she noticed the pickup truck was following her. She picked up speed. He picked up speed. She started weaving in and out of traffic. He did the same, following her. She raced out onto the freeway, onto the expressway, racing far above the speed limit. He kept pace with her. She raced into her subdivision, raced up to her street, screeched into the driveway of her house, grabbed her keys, ran to the front door, and as she was running to the front door, trying to get the front door key out, ready to put it in the the lock of the front door and, and get to safety, she noticed the pickup truck had just arrived. And as she was fumbling to put the key in, she noticed he jumped out of the pickup truck, but he wasn't running towards her, he was running towards her car. So she sort of stopped. What was, what, what's going on? And he ran to her car and he opened up the back seat of her car and pounced on an intruder who had been hiding in the back seat that whole time with a butcher's knife. And all the while, when she saw him in the rearview mirror, he said, There's an idiot! There's a, a mental case in your back seat with a butcher's knife! Get out of the car! You see, when you live in Lodabar long enough, in a spiritual barren place long enough, you start to believe the lies they say about your Savior, and you run. When you live in Lodabar long enough, you actually start to think the Savior may in fact be your enemy. Any family members like that? Neighbors who are hostile to this good news? Our country is growing more and more and more hostile as each year passes. You live in Lodabar long enough, that's what happens. There are Lodabars in Oshawa. There are Lodabars all over our country, but I want to speak about one Lodabar in our country, and that is Quebec and Montreal in particular. The reality is this. In a survey of Canadians in 2011, of the 14.3 million Canadians whose mother tongue is English, 16.1% self-identified as evangelical. Now, I find that really high, but that's what the stats showed. Of the 1.1 million ethnically Chinese Canadians whose mother tongue is, is Mandarin or Cantonese, 22% self-identified as evangelical Christian. There are 244 other people groups in Canada. Many of their percentages are quite high. But of the 7.3 million Canadians whose mother tongue is French, French Canadians, 0.8 of 1% self-identified as evangelical Christian. And if you go to the city of Montreal, it drops to 0.3 of 1%. We are sending missionaries to these countries. Many of these countries far outweigh, percentage-wise, the number of evangelical Christians than we have amongst French Canadians and in Montreal. I believe in a theology of proximity. I have a greater responsibility to reach my neighbors than you do, Duane. 
But Dwayne, you have a greater responsibility to reach your neighbors than I do. And for all of us who are English Canadians, whether we like it or not, Quebec is our neighbor. I believe as evangelical, English-speaking Canadians, we have a God-given responsibility to reach Canadians for Christ who happen to speak French. Very few nations are sending missionaries to Quebec, and yet it's one of the least reached people groups, certainly in all of the Americas, if not the world, at 0.8 of 1%. We're sending missionaries to Pakistan at 0.6 of 1%. Japan, 0.6 of 1%. Poland, 0.4 of 1%. Quebec, 0.8 of 1%. Very few missionaries are being sent. And so I believe it's our responsibility as churches across our nation to reach our fellow Canadians who happen to speak French. Our story and our fellowship family is quite an exciting story. If we move to the next slide. It started in the 1930s and 40s when some young men, English-speaking young men, were learning French so they could go into northwestern Quebec. Uh, it was opening up with the uranium and gold mines. It was Boomtown. And some of these young guys with their broken French were going into northwest Quebec and trying to share the gospel in a very hostile environment. I mean, every village in Quebec in those days, in the 30s and 40s into the 50s, was run by the, the village uh, police chief, the mayor, and the local Roman Catholic priests. And they were hostile to the gospel to these young men coming in. One of our first pioneers was this young man at 21 years of age, Murray Heron, just passed away a couple years ago. He had just come to know the Lord as an 18-year-old, and now in his young 20s, he would finished Bible school and was on a train making his way to Noranda. He was reading the newspaper, and he read a story of a, a church planter in this area where he was going to in Noranda and Rouen. And, and, and a group of individuals had come and ripped up their hymn books, overturned their piano, lit it on fire, and then lit the pastor's car on fire. That's the hostility of what was going on in 1947. The next slide shows Murray in one of his first um, street meetings in July of 1947. One of the best ways to get the gospel was get on a, a street corner and start to preach the gospel, have some Christians sing some hymns, and crowds, 100 people would show up. It was sort of entertainment on a Saturday night. But on this evening in July of 1947, uh, six police officers and two police cars showed up and took Murray and the six other Christians who were with him and stuck them in jail for preaching the gospel on a street corner. In fact, if you add up all the time that our first pioneers from the fellowship in Quebec spent time in jail, it adds up to seven years. It became front-page news in many of our nation's magazines, even the front uh, uh, news story in Time magazine in the late 1940s. In the next slide, it shows some of the first individuals who were put in jail. The individual furthest to uh, my, your left is uh, Les Barnhart, who was a grocery owner and sold it all up to go start a church in Le Sarre. I mean, the sacrifice of these young pioneers was extraordinary to get the gospel in Quebec started. That's where it started. And then the church grew. We can go to the next slide here. Uh, in the 1960s, during the Quiet Revolution, there was not a shot in the sense that it was fired, but a revolution happened. The Roman Catholics' pull on society in Quebec had waned so much and had been divided and conquered so greatly 
that the secularization of the province in these last 40, 50 years has been extraordinary. Quebec is the most secular place in all of the Americas. It's as much as Europe is, and Europe is a spiritually bankrupt continent. It's a heartbreak. I can drive in Quebec three hours to find any evangelical church, not just a fellowship evangelical, but any evangelical. I can drive village after village after village after village, and there's nothing. It's truly a mission field. Imagine driving from Oshawa to London, Ontario, not a single evangelical church. That's Quebec. That's how dire the need is, spiritual need, in a province next door to us. The next slide shows the growth of this work from first three churches in 1949 to 1999, 65 churches. Today, 88 French-speaking Fellowship Baptist churches. We are the largest French-speaking evangelical denomination in all of Quebec, but only 88 churches. We think about eight to 9,000 believers in a province of 7.3 million people. And so the work has only just started. And we want to continue to partner with the Lord in seeing French Canadians come to Christ. The next slide shows a document that we're using, Reaching French Canada, a directional document that basically uses a formula. And the formula is lousy math, but it works on mission. Seven times seven equals one. Lousy math, right? But the formula works. Seven partnerships committing for seven years to plant one French Fellowship Baptist Church in Quebec. And we've seen well over 100 churches involved in this in just the last year. This summer alone, over a dozen teams from these partner trips, uh, partner churches all over Canada are sending teams of their people to their little church plant to do acts of kindness in the community. They, people don't speak French. You don't need to. You just go and you do these acts of kindness in team. And then the French-speaking church planters then develop the relationships that arise from these occasions. Next slide shows the partnership that Calvary Baptist Church has very recently begun in St. Hyacinth. So this is a, a church that is in the midst of planting a significant church in the little town of Boloy that you're involved with. It's a church that has sent out workers and pastors and evangelists through its history. It's a remarkable church that's involved in social justice issues in the community, through their food bank, through a clothing bank, through evangelism, and now they're sending out one of their own, Stéphane Tessier, to go and start this church. And you, as a church family, whether you recognize it or not, because it's very new, are in partnership. I'm hoping to hear from Pastor Rick that some of you will go to St. Hyacinth to be part of a team to help and come alongside of that, that church in the next seven years. God bless you. Thank you for your involvement. So let's go back to our story. In verse 8, Mephibosheth comes to uh, the king and he finally realizes, oh my, my sin is so great. He, he comes down and he says, I feel like a, a dead dog from Lodabar. His sin, he comes in basically repentance. And what is David's response? He receives him with full, full grace. In verse 9, he, he, very clearly he says, I'm going to have a servant who's going to take care of you. And then if you can look in verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, David keeps his promise. And, and Mephibosheth comes and lives with David in the palace. And, and if I can, again, take liberties on this, I can imagine what it was like every evening when they came to the banqueting table. And, and David would wait for his family 
at this great table where, where they would banquet, and, and in would come you know, his children, you know, Ammon, and then his daughter Tamar would come and sit down, and, and the heir apparent Solomon would leave his library after studying and would come and sit at the right hand of his father David, and, and then in comes Absalom with his long curly black hair, and we all know how... Absalom was. And he comes in and he straddles the chair. And then in comes Commander General Joab, who has fought for David now these many decades. Ramrod straight, he marches and he sits at the banqueting table. And then they sit and they wait. And they hear a tap and another tap and another tap and another tap. And they know it's Mephibosheth with his crutches coming down the marble, the marble floor of the hallway. And he comes into the banqueting room and he comes up to the chair and he, he collapses, exhausted in the chair and once again apologizes to King David for being late at the table. And David smiles, and the rest of the family smiles and says, you never have to apologize. We're just so glad to have you at our table every evening. Do you think Mephibosheth understood grace? Every night he came to a banqueting table that was set for him and a palace of plenty which he didn't deserve. He was reminded of it. I started with the greatest 19th century American author, arguably one of the greatest 20th century American authors, Ernest Hemingway. He tells a short story. Again, a man who was not enamored by the church or or Christianity. His, his grandparents had been missionaries in China. He knew the way. His mother and father had led, but his mother had been so, so rife with anger towards her bohemian son who lived a, you know, a, a raunchy lifestyle. In fact, when, when one day he got a present from his mother, and it was the gun that his father had committed suicide with. What a lovely gift. He hated his mother, and he hated her Savior. Ernest Hemingway. He wrote a story. He loved Spain. He had fought in the Civil War in the 30s against Franco. He wrote a story of a, of a father whose son had run away. They were estranged for a number of years, and finally the father, just overcome by just grief over his son and his estrangement, he went to Madrid where he figured his son had run to the big city, and he went to the largest distribution newspaper named El Libra, and he put a little advertisement in El Libra, and it was this, Paco. Paco was his son's name, a very common name in Spain. Many people named their sons Paco, Peter. Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. On Tuesday, he was making his way to Hotel Montana, a beautiful international hotel in the center of Madrid with a large courtyard around this beautiful hotel. He turned the corner at noon, and in front of that hotel, in this courtyard, there were 800 young men, all of their names, Paco. People are yearning for grace. They don't even know it, looking for it desperate for it, chasing after forgiveness and His grace. And we, His children, have the opportunity to share the good news that Jesus offers, that grace, through His finished work on the cross. My call to you, my challenge to every last one of us, including myself, is are you doing it? Are you an agent of that grace to the Pacos, to the Peters, 
to the Paulas, in French Canada to the Pierres and the Paulines. Are we agents of that grace? I hope we are, for God's sake and our great good. Amen? Let's pray to that end. Father, we are so very grateful for your goodness and your grace, that mercy that we do not deserve. Lord, we've been reminded just all that we have received in Christ Jesus. May we be overwhelmed by it as we sing praise to you in this next moment. But Lord, this is our marching orders from here, from today, into the community in which we live. Help us, Father, to be agents of that grace to our neighbors, to family members, to parents, to children, to grandchildren who have not succumbed to this mercy, this life, living, loving kindness, this chassid, this your choice of stooping and bending towards your children rather than giving what we deserve, your wrath. Oh, God, help us to be agents of that grace and mercy. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.